Welcome to Talk with the Texan, Money and Life with Troy Eckert. This program is thought-provoking, informative, entertaining, and down to business. We face facts and ideas about how to make, protect, and build your net worth. You'll get over three decades of frontline experiences and real-life examples of what to do and the pitfalls to avoid. Now, here's Troy Eckert. Hey, this is Troy Eckert. This is Talk with the Texan, Money and Life. Thank you for joining me today. Today's show ought to be quite interesting. I'll try to hit on topics I think are going to be applicable to those that are listening that want to do more with their life than just sit around and watch the trees grow, the grass turn green, and watch the birds fly in the sky. Now, let me give you a little background just for those of you who have not joined the show before. Started my career in 1985, spent my time working on behalf of wealthy millionaires trying to develop oil and gas portfolios. That career left me looking and wanting to learn more about wealth and about how the wealthy of this country, the United States, actually goes about creating wealth from nothing and those who have created wealth, how they try to broaden it, but more importantly, the mistakes they made along the way. So today we're going to talk about the common traits that millionaires always seem to have, the uh, efforts that they have to try to become wealthy and what it looks like at the end of the day. Now, again, this is Troy Eckerd. This is Talk with the Texan Money and Life. And everything I'm going to talk about in today's show will have to do with about your life and about money and how they're all tied into one. I love the old statement from many uh, old advisors and and people of, uh, I guess, less means will always say, you know, money is the root of all evil and money doesn't make you happy and all those other little cliches. But at the end of the day, uh, coming from a background myself of a fairly poor family down in South Texas, and watching how lives have changed and the way people have lived, both good and bad. And it does involve money because money does give you options and money does give you freedom. So one of the things I should start off with is in this particular show is that I'll be 57 years old uh, fairly soon. Um, I've had a long, long 36-year career in investments here in this country, primarily dealing with alternative investments. But every single client I have worked with the last 30 years plus have been what we call an accredited investor. That means that by the Security Exchange Commission definition, these investors are sophisticated, they're qualified, they have a million dollar plus net worth, not counting their home and furnishings. They truly have assets they can invest and it's well over a million dollars. Now, this show is not about selling investments. This show is not about asking you to go jump into stocks or bonds or cannabis farms or oil and gas. It's about just having a great dialogue or or a conversation about what it takes to be successful and about how you can create wealth, but do you really have a balance in your life? And that's what I'm all about. At my age and where I've been and how I've come through things over the last 36 years, I've learned that there are little tricks to the trade and little things I've learned along the way from the thousands of millionaires that I've talked with that I'm going to share to my audience today. So let's get started. The first thing I want to do is just talk about the definition I have. This is a Troy Eckerd definition between being rich and wealthy. Now, rich is easy. Rich has a direct correlation to the perspective in which you're standing. If I'm living in a rundown uh, mobile home park that is drug infested, it is a nightly rental, it is not in the best part of town, and I'm not making fun of mobile home parks, by the way. There are some great mobile home parks. I'm trying to give you a visual analogy. But let's say I'm living in an area that's not very good. It's bottom of the barrel when it comes to economics. Well, if I look at the guy living in a single family dwelling or even a nice apartment complex two or three blocks away, 
in my view, that individual might be actually rich compared to where I'm at in my life today. And I want you to understand that scale goes all the way up from the poorest person in this country, all the way up to the richest guy, Jeff Bezos, right? Because at any given point in time, the other 336 million fall somewhere between the most unable to take care of themselves, the most poor of us all, all the way up to the richest of us all. And so depending on the, on the step of the ladder or the step of the staircase you're standing on, the person that might be doing better than you could be classified in your own definition as rich. So I like to think of rich as something that means you have some substance. You have some choices in life you can make. You have the ability to digress one way or the other or to move in one direction or the other or to change jobs or to change cities. You have money to buy a car. You, you're rich in that you, at whatever level you're at, you have choices. There's many in this country who don't have choices, right? Because they don't have any money. They're stuck. They're on government programs. They're completely limited to where they can go, what they can do, and how they can run their lives. So I look at rich as being just a fundamental ability to have freedom and choice. Now, in the definition in the investment world, rich, according to the SEC, and I'm not giving you their definition, I'm saying they have defined somebody who's accredited as somebody who has over a million dollars in net worth without counting their home and personal belongings. So that apparently means they're rich. They're rich enough to make decisions to invest and they can go out and invest in alternative investments and other type of asset classes because the SEC and their great wisdom has made that a definition of being rich. So let's just use that for this particular example. Rich is anybody with a million dollars or higher. Now, what's the difference between somebody who I would define as rich and somebody I would define as wealthy? Well, wealthy to me is pretty simple. I have thousands of millionaires I've talked with and had as investors over the last 36 years. My personal definition of rich is somebody who has enough money, they can make choices that are of substantive value. They can start a business. They can buy cars without having to finance them. They can buy nicer homes. They can travel the world if they so desire. They can invest in different asset classes and not worry about needing that money back in order to pay the grocery bill or pay their bills. So they're rich enough, they have excess capital, excess, excess net worth that goes beyond just the stability of living. Now, what do I see as wealthy? This is my definition. I think somebody is wealthy when they have enough money that their money gives them enough income and produces enough of a yield they can maintain the lifestyle they have if they never made another dollar outside of what their own assets generate as far as internal income. So if I've got $10 million in the bank and it's making 10% return a year, I'm making a million dollars a year and my lifestyle is less than a million a year, I'm wealthy. The same goes if I had a million dollars in the bank and it made 10% interest and I had $100,000 a year in interest, if I can live my lifestyle the way I want on a beach or in a small town and I can live on $100,000 a year, I would call you wealthy because your money is creating enough income to give you the lifestyle you want to live forever. Now, some of us, like me, you know, we have a higher lifestyle. We like, we like the better things in life. We like to travel. We like, like a second home. Maybe we want to uh, do a lot of vacations in exotic places. And so, we have a pretty ferocious appetite when it comes to the way that we like to live our lives and spend money. So wealthy for somebody who has that kind of an appetite has to be a greater amount of assets creating a larger amount of income, but the definition still the same. As long as money, the assets I have generate enough income to give me the kind of lifestyle I want without ever having to have a job or without ever having to go outside the current assets that I own, I would define that as wealthy. 
And why is that important when we start the show today? Well, let me just put an example is that I listen to people all the time, depending on who's doing the talking. And they say, you know, that guy's really, really rich. I go, what makes him rich? Well, he's driving a Mercedes. He's living in a big house over in the nice side of town. And, you know, his kids go to a great school and he's got a boat. And I go, really? How do you know he's not up to debt? to his nose. How do you know that the the Mercedes is not a 36 month lease? How do you know the house doesn't have a 30 year mortgage? You barely put any money down and he's strapped trying to make the payment every month. And the boat he has, well, that's 380 bucks a month, but he doesn't know if he can make next month's payment. See, just because the facade says rich doesn't mean he's rich. What I have found in my career, if I were to put a thousand of my previous investors or my current investors in a room, along with another thousand not really truly rich investors in a room, you probably would guess absolutely wrong which ones are which. Because what I found is that being rich means also having certain characteristics, such as maybe humility, such as not flaunting your wealth, such as being more consciously aware that maybe a little bit of softness to who you are carries a long way when it comes to how the world perceives you. Now, it is interesting that when you are young and you're making a lot of money and you're trying to build your career, you're trying to posture your chest out. You're trying to put yourself in a position where the other sees you as successful. They, they want to know that, hey, that guy walking in looks like he makes a lot of money, lives in a great house. I bet he makes a ton of cash. I bet he's really a, a successful individual. Well, that's, that's what you do when you're in your 30s and your 40s. And when you get to your 50s and your 60s, you're no longer trying to impress anybody. You start saying, I really don't want people knowing I have a lot of money. I mean, they're going to figure it out if I live in a multi-million dollar neighborhood or I'm sitting on a 150-foot yacht in the, in the uh, marina down in Florida. They're going to know that I obviously either am up to my rear end leveraged debt or I really have a lot of money. But other than the obvious, I don't want to walk into a grocery store, walk into a movie theater, any type of a public setting. And I don't want people to look at me as if, oh, that guy's got a ton of money. It puts you in a dangerous position. Now, you might think that the most danger you have is going to come from somebody who's going to try to rob you because they're going to notice that you have a Rolex watch on, or maybe you have an indication that you have a lot of cash on you because your wallet looks fat. That's not really who fear who I'm afraid of today. When, when you get to the point of being rich or wealthy, your greatest fear is for those who want to be rich or wealthy, but they want to do it at your expense. So let's talk about the next part of this show. And that is, what are some of the common mistakes that successful entrepreneurs make? And what are some of the rich investors or the wealthy investors? What are some of the common mistakes they make? Well, let's go through it. First and foremost, and I've seen this happen multiple times, is they make fatal decisions. I had a partner back in 19, excuse me, 2008. And he called me right after the 2008 housing bubble crash uh, dropped. And he said, hey, Troy, I just want to let you know, I'm, I'm not going to be able to invest with you anymore. And uh, realistically, I'm going to go back to work. My wife's got cancer. And he said, uh, we've lost everything. And I said, man, what happened? What, what did you do? He goes, well, we made a fatal decision. Um, my niece's husband was in real estate limited partnerships and put together a bunch of limited partnerships in a large growing metropolitan area. And we did really well on the first couple of funds. So we decided to make a big decision. We moved most of almost all of our retirement account into those partnerships, into those real estate funds. And the first ones were doing so good. They were making high teens, low 20 return percent returns. And it looked like the right thing to do. And when the 2008 bubble crash began and, and started and became evident, uh, we were notified that really it was nothing more than a just under a $100 million Ponzi scheme and that all of our money was gone. It didn't exist. It was not there. It was stolen. 
And so our niece's husband stole from all of the family members and stole from us. And what we did was we made the number one error. I made a fatal decision by putting so much money into an investment, making a decision that the consequences, if not positive, were fatal to your, either your wealth, your, your, your health, or your good fortunes. So avoiding a fatal decision is critical, and that's one of the mistakes you want to stay away from. The next one is, and you're going to find this to be a little funny, I do. Everybody's been telling me since I was 20 years old in the investment world, you got to be diversified. You got to be diversified. You got to be diversified. And the fact of the matter is, is I think many failures and mistakes made by entrepreneurs is that you're too diversified. You know, you think you got to have some money in real estate and apartments and storage and oil and gas and stocks and bonds and cannabis farms and mines and you're into ATM machines and you're investing in nine startups. And, and I'm going to use a, an example of a, of a very, very wealthy partner I had. Um, in fact, he's worth a couple of billion dollars. I'll leave his name off the, off the show. But when I first became a partner, um, I was invited to these uh, private equity quarterly investment meetings. And I would sit at the back of the room. I was a small, small player. I had a, a project that involved real estate that this particular wealthy investor was partnering with me. And I sat at the back of the room. And the, and the whole idea of the day was each one of the little private investments this billionaire had made would have each person get up and give a 30-minute presentation on what the investment was about, progress they had made since the last quarterly report, and to give an update on how things were going and then allow the room full of all these master degreed MBA smart guys sit around the room and they all got to take pot shots and ask questions to maybe either humiliate them or at least to present the fact that it wasn't as good as they were trying to represent. Now, I listened to the content of these investments. And by the time I'd gone to my second or my third quarterly meeting, it was very clear to me that the investments were made not out of what I would think would be very selective choices. It was made more out of, I've got so much money. Let me just throw some money out of some of these investments. One out of 20 might work. And if it works, maybe it makes me 10 to 20 times my money. Now, the problem with that theory is that if you really think about it, if I want to make 8 or 10% on my money, but if every fifth venture, I end up losing 100% of my investment because I made a bad choice, it takes that 8 or 10% down quite substantially. I start losing 20, 30% on my rate of return because I've lost 100% of my principal in every one out of five investments. So one of the things about being too diversified, it really, it really creates three things that make it difficult. Bandwidth. How much can you or your investment council really manage or take control of and properly oversee? It becomes very, very unstable. And so the more assets, the more investments, the more things you do, the more likelihood you're going to have severe mistakes and possibly make a fatal decision mistake without even knowing it because you put too many eggs in one basket. The other side about being too diversified is that we can't be all things to all people. We can't be all knowing. It's like the uh, saying goes, jack of all trades, master of nothing. And the fact is, I see it happen all the time. I'll talk to investors that I know, that I work with, and they'll tell me about investments they make. And I'll say, well, why are you in that? What do you know? Well, I don't know much about it, but it sounded like a good deal. So I did it. I made the investment. Now I don't know what happened. And I'm looking at myself thinking, you, you didn't even do the basic due diligence, but more importantly is you did it because you felt like this mantra of we must be diversified. That mantra comes out. And at the same time, you're thinking, but why do I have to be diversified? If I knew the winning horse in the Kentucky Derby, I don't need to make a bet on all 10 horses in the race. I need to put all my money 
on horse number 10 if that's the winning horse, so long as it's not a fatal decision. In other words, it's all my money I have. It's just the money I have that day at the track, right? So the other part of diversification is that sometimes when you're too diversified, I, I liken it to being a gambler when you're playing on the craps table. If you sit back and take a non-emotional view of the craps table, it's real simple. The table wins on one or two throws of the dice, but when they win, they get all the money on the table. When somebody throws a craps dice and that all that money, all those positions, all those players huddled around the table, have all these money and dollars invested on the table, and all of a sudden there's a crap shoot and the crap number comes up, these big old long sticks come out with great big hooks and they hook all the money and they rake it into a pile and everybody loses all at one time. Now, the problem with that is, is that you think you're spreading your bets. You think you're covering all the numbers, but in truth, what you've really done is you've almost got so many bets on the table, you're almost assured of losing your money. Even if you win, you lose. Same thing can be said of roulette. You bet every number on the table. Sure, I'm going to win every time, but I have to have enough of a gain to offset the other 35 numbers I did not get and I lose my money. Well, investments the same way. Put $100,000 in 10 investments. 10 out of 10, you don't have a clue what's going on. And all of a sudden you find yourself five out of 10 are failures. Even if one out of the remaining five have some relative return on investment, do you have enough of a return to make up for a 50% principal loss? The answer is 99% of the time, if not 99.9%, the answer is no. You're not going to make enough money back. You made a fatal decision because of being over-diversified. Now, when we talk about this next one, this is a, this is a personal judgment because there's a lot of connotations, but let's talk about it. being too greedy. Now, greedy is real simple. Um, greed has to do with a desire to make more, to not leave any un, unturned stones, not to leave any money on the table when there's more profit to be made. But the truth of the matter is, a lot of people mistake greed for aggression. Now, I personally don't find aggression a bad thing so long as it is aggression for the right reason in the right direction. But sometimes when you stand back or others view your investment habits or the way you spend your money or how you create your wealth, they say, man, that guy is greedy, 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 man. He wants to buy every lot in the neighborhood. He wants to build every new spec home in the neighborhood. He wants to buy every bit of the corn left in the, in the big corn stall at the flea market. He wants to own it all. And the truth of the matter is, is sometimes being aggressive is perceived as being greedy, but I think there's a difference. And so let's just talk about what greed looks like when it comes to uh, being a, a wealthy or rich investor. Remember, this is all about money and life, right? So we're talking about money and life. Some people are driven purely by one desire. They must win at all costs. They have to beat whoever they're playing at all costs. And they don't care if they go bankrupt three times. So as long as every person along the way, they can say, I won 99 out of 100 competitive contests in the business world. I don't like those people. I can spot them fairly easy and I avoid them at all costs because they don't even know the rules of the game or the boundaries they can play by. But you also think about greed from the standpoint of what is being too greedy. Well, let's take a look at today's stock market. So the big question today is why does the stock market continue to go up when all the fundamentals suggest there's no reason for it to be as high as it is and in fact, why it's not already starting to correct? So we go up 500 points, down 700 points, up 300, down 400. We're vacillating all over the board at this middle 30,000 range on the Dow. But the truth of the matter is there's only one reason in my view well, let's call it two reasons, in my view, why the Dow continues to keep everybody's attention. One, there's nowhere else to go. If you pull all your money out of the stock market, you're sitting in cash and the bank is paying you half percent on your money. You're not even making enough to keep up with inflation. So by just default, the stock market is getting all the cash. And number two, liquidity. 
Um, when you're sitting there running your business and you're making the same kind of profit you did the previous year, your business is growing and booming, you find yourself with all this extra income and money, even after tax, and you're going, what the heck do I do with it? Well, I'm going to buy more timber. I'm going to buy more uh, spec homes. I'm going to buy more apartment complex. Well, at some point in time, you're thinking, well, when is enough enough? When, when is making enough money enough? When is staying in the stock market does it make sense to stay there when you know that most likely it has a much higher probability of going backwards and losing value than going up? Greed is the person who stays right to the very last second trying to grab every single dollar on the uptick that they can make. Now, there's day traders and there's all kinds of professionals who like up and down markets. I'm talking about the 85% of stockholders who held it in retirement or pension funds. They're not sophisticated. They're, you know, they're, they're weekend warrior investors in the stock market. And they're trying to follow trades and tips and all these different stocks are going up and down with absolutely zero basis. And they're staying, 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 thinking I can make another five, 10, 20, $30,000, $100,000 in profit. And if I make that, well, then I can afford to lose in the next two stocks. So greed is, greed is, a, is a good thing because that, that generates opportunity and that makes people try crazy investments and crazy business ideas that otherwise would never get started. But let's not confuse greed with aggression. Aggression is one thing where you're totally focused on where you're going and greed is maybe staying just a hair too long. Uh, the other thing is, is arrogance. A uh, big mistake I find in a lot of wealthy investors is they're arrogant. They're, they're, they're too proud. They'll tell me they've invested with a company. I'll say, you know, that company's not a very legitimate company. In fact, I can clearly demonstrate they're, they're fraudulent. They've actually been stealing clients' money, and I'm sure they've stolen your money. And they get so bowed up, they get almost embarrassed where they don't want to go, yeah, well, tell me how I got ripped off. Tell me what you know. They, they don't say, well, you just don't understand. You know, they're good guys. Everything's going well. And when you're arrogant and you don't want to be informed and you don't want to ask questions and you, you're too prideful in the way you invest and the way you run your business, let me tell you something. I mean, I, I had a young entrepreneur sit down at one of our private investor conferences, and I may have told this story in the previous show, but it's worth repeating again, um, sat down and he was explaining how he was building a housing business and that he was building spec homes with investors' money and he was building residential property with the anticipation that with small deposits, these buyers would close and they would be able to buy these houses in you know, 90 to 180 days when he finished them up. He was doing really, really well the last year and a half, two years. But at this conference, he sat down with me and about five other more senior investors, you know, over 60-year-old. He was kind of in his 40s. And he, I said, well, how are you doing right now? And let me just ask you a basic question. I said, what happens if the real estate market stops today and all these folks who put down these deposits decide not to buy the spec homes that you've built? And he point blank, didn't hesitate, took one little small breath, said, oh, I'll go bankrupt. If they don't close and I don't sell these homes, I, I don't have the money. I will, I will file bankruptcy. I will be bankrupt. And I said, wow, you literally have made a fatal decision from the standpoint you've risked so much on the money. You're confident that they're going to build, but now the market's becoming shaky. Inflation's kicking in. Materials are going up. Profit margins are getting thinner. And maybe home buyers are backing up saying, now's not the time to buy. Now you're looking very, very precariously standing on that edge. So me and the four or five guys in the room, we just kind of talked to him for a few minutes and, and we made a suggestion. I said to him, what if you went back to these investors and said, material prices are going up, but if I can buy and prepay much of the material for the homes you're going to buy, I can lock in those prices for material today and save you from having to spend a lot more money on future costs. But more importantly is you don't want to put me in jeopardy of not completing the homes because then if I'm not in business, you don't get the home that you want. 
why don't you guys put up some capital now? I'll commit 100% of it going straight to buying the material. And now we have locked in prices and we avoid the inflation that's taking place in the home market. So he took the idea. I know he thought about it all day. I didn't see him the rest of the day. And he took off a little early from the conference because he had to go back to be with his kids. And about three weeks later, he called in and said, it worked. It worked. They, they took exactly the advice you gave me. They put up the money to buy the material. And that was where I was in a trouble because if the material costs kept rising, I had no way of pushing it back on those home buyers. I was going to eat it and it was going to go right. It was going to go right past my profit margin. So here you have this really sharp, sophisticated guy building homes. He's a young entrepreneur. He's making a lot of success, making a couple of million dollars a year in profit. He's cranking, but he knows, man, there's a tsunami coming and I don't know how to get out of the way of it. So by not being arrogant, by coming and being forthright and telling some senior investors who've probably seen this kind of cycle before or something like it, giving a little bit of advice helped him to not only redirect the risk, but reduce the risk and realign himself so it wasn't a fatal decision because he was able to go renegotiate. This can be done all the time, folks. Let me tell you something. And one thing I shouldn't mention in each one of my shows is that, first off, if you want to call in and ask questions or, or holler at me at any time, you can always call the show number, which is 866-472-5790. I'll repeat that. 866-472-5790. Again, this is Talk with the Texan, Money and Life, and this is Troy Eckert. So anytime you want to call, you give me a shout. I'll be glad to talk uh, anything you want to talk about, and I'll answer questions the best I can. But uh, the idea here is that when you continue to have um, mistakes that can cause you to go from being successful to failure, it usually is because of, of many different factors. But what I find most typical in these millionaires, as I described, is a fatal decision, too diversified, too greedy, uh, too concentrated in one particular asset class or another, too arrogant. And the last one, it's going to be a kicker. They're too lazy. People get lazy. Um, I, can be, I can say that I'm actually guilty of that as well. What does that mean? Well, you, you start making enough money and you think, you know, I'm going to buy that lot or I'm going to buy that building. I'm going to buy that rent house. I really should do some background and pull the utility bills and I should look at the infrastructure and I should hire an inspector. Maybe I should get that backyard looked at for that water drainage. And you go, ah, hell, I'll fix it later. I'm not going to worry about it. And what ends up happening to us, what happens to you and me, is that we end up finding ourselves making decisions today, today, that we wouldn't have made 10, 15, 20 years ago. Well, why not? Well, as you make more money or as you become more seasoned as an investor and as somebody that has a higher or deeper pocket of wealth, you start finding that, well, I can afford that if I'm wrong a little bit, eh, it's not going to hurt me. I can afford to say, I don't have the time to run that extra due diligence. I don't, I'm too cheap to hire a lawyer to look at the contract. I've seen a hundred of them. I'll review the contract myself. And what we find ourselves doing is we find ourselves not admittedly so because most entrepreneurs are workhorses, most entrepreneurs are workaholics, but we do find ourselves being lazy in that the, the position of failure is not quite as painful as it was 10, 20 years ago when we started our careers and we had very little capital to invest. Now, I don't like the lazy part because the lazy part is really where you say to yourself, I might as well just go to Vegas, throw the money on a table and hope I either get black or red on the, on the roulette table because I either win or I lose. I think the laziness is truly a, a hole in the side of our ship. It's the, it's the element of our portfolio and our decision-making that causes us to have losses we otherwise would not expect. Now, let's move to the next part. So, we kind of talked about, you know, the different mistakes that uh, investors and entrepreneurs make. Um, let's talk about the next one, which 
can help you with many of these mistakes. And it's a word I've learned really the last five years of my life. Um, it was hard for me. I mean, I'm, I'm always a gamer. I'm always a player. I'm a serial entrepreneur. Um, I go to these conferences with this billionaire. I listen to all these different investments. I don't even know if I finished that thought, but you know, I would look at these guys' investments and I would sit there and watch them one by one present. And I will scratch my head and I go, why in the world would you make an investment in that? What, what? I don't even get that product. And I'd listen to these guys one by one, get up over eight hours explaining the investment joint venture they created, the fact that the billionaire was invested. And then I would look at the, the explanation, the progress, and I would go, wow, I, I'm not even seeing where that's going. Maybe three or four out of the 25 that I listened to sounded reasonable, sounded like something I would do. And it was clear to me, these were investments were made as a result of a lot of success in other areas. And it was the, let me try a few things just to see if they work. Let's face it, you wouldn't have brand new dot-comers around if people had invested in ideas. You wouldn't have had uh, Uber. You wouldn't have Twitter. You wouldn't have so many investments out there. I mean, literally the entire United States is made up of great ideas followed by the freedom of free capital, right? But as I go through this private equity meetings quarter by quarter, I was always paying very close attention to what they said the previous quarter and what they said this time. And after a while, I came to the conclusion, this really was just play money. It was kind of like, I got $50 million to play with. I'll give a million here, 2 million there, 5 million here, 2 million there. And I'm going to let this game play out. And when they stumble and fall, I'll write it as a tax write-off. I'll take it as a loss because it's not a fatal decision. I'm making enough income. I can make it back but I'm not really worried that if it fails because I'm probably either not going to put more money into it and I'll like a horse that's dying of a broken leg, I'll shoot it and put it out of its misery. Or if it has some substance, if it's created some aggregated growth, I'll I'll recapitalize it, but then the terms will change and I'll own more of it. So it's worth the extra risk. So I watched this day in and day out in those quarterly meetings. I was very thankful to be in them. I learned a great deal. But what I did learn is even as smart and as wealthy as this individual was, you still looked at it and go, how in the world did you come to the conclusion to write a check and participate in that particular venture because it made no sense? So since that occurred, since back in the early 2000s when I was part of that private equity meeting and group for about two years, I did walk away with one very, very important thing that I heard from his president. And he said, you know, Troy, the greatest investments we've ever made are on the decisions where we said, no, no, thank you not interested. The power of no is what I want to talk about next. What I want to tell you is it's hard. It's hard if you are an optimist. It's hard if you're an entrepreneur. It's hard if you are a a wide open, let me see what's over the top of the next hill kind of individual. Serial entrepreneurs are that way. They want to know about everything. They want to know about what you're doing, how you did it. They want to take the, the, the watch apart to learn about every part and where it came from and how it was made and who made a profit along the way. We can't help ourselves. We, we like to surgically digest everything that we're involved in, whether it be recreation or serious business or just sitting in a restaurant. We want to know how it works, why it works, and what the game and how it's played. Well, the power of no is pretty simple. The power of no is your strength of character just to say, no, thank you. So I've been doing that the last four or five years. I mean, really, it it took me a long time because I found a lot of fantastic investments. I've run across many, many great opportunities by saying yes. But if I go back and think about it, had I been more disciplined to say no and say no early on, 
I could have saved myself millions of dollars of my money and those of my investing partners. And I could have saved myself thousands of hours of hard work, work and grief. Because when you say yes, sometimes it's like stepping in tar. Making that step into tar can take hours and hours and hours to remove that tar if you can ever get it off your shoe. Well, sometimes making a bad business decision, a bad investment decision can be like tar. You, once you make it, you can't get rid of it. And you spend thousands of hours and lots of labor and pain and money trying to unwind a simple yes decision. So I'm going to tell the audience today that one of the things I want you to start doing is start thinking about before you answer yes or no, I want you to start with this premise. What's in it for me? I want you to start with a circle on a piece of paper. And I want you to put me, M-E, in the middle of that circle. And I want you to start layering outer bounds like a, uh, like a dartboard, and each outer band becomes less and less in points, just like a dartboard. The bullseye's worth 50, the outer ring's worth whatever, six or eight points. Don't even know, but it, but it doesn't get much better the further you get away from the center. But what I do know is that when I started putting the word me in the center circle, it was very clear that I was going to think about, is what the person is inviting me to do, what does it do for me? How does it help me? Why do they need me? What's going to be in it for me? And how does, how does Troy benefit long-term from doing this? And if I can't answer those questions with overwhelming positive answers, the answer is no. And so when you've been in the, the line of work I've been in, where you've been raising capital, working with investors, investing your own money, buying assets, buying and building and selling, you are known as the go-to person when it comes to, hey, I know Troy can put together the capital if we have a good idea. The problem with that is, is that you, you get to the point where you say, I don't have not only the bandwidth to listen to all these ideas, my, my energy level, my desire to hear about these ideas becomes less and less. So I have made the center circle on that piece of paper. I've increased it from a bullseye, small little circle. Now I've got about 75% of my piece of paper in front of me with the big circle saying me and the outer bands are really far out, but they're really, really thin and they wrap around the me circle. Now, why is that? Well, as you get older, you realize you have less time. As you get older, you want to protect the assets that you made. So you you're, don't want to risk it, but you more importantly don't have the time to fix it if it's a mistake. I think the other thing is, is like I said at the beginning, I don't want to be approached by people who have nowhere else to go. And so they come to you thinking that if it doesn't work, so what? He's rich anyway. I'm young. I can do it two or three more times. I want to do investments where the structure of the venture, the pain and the gain can be more equally shared by those who are inviting me into the investment as just like I'm going to be putting up the capital. So to simplify that, it is two letters, N-O. I want you to get used to the practice of putting that circle in the middle of your paper. And every time somebody says, hey, I'd like you to invest in an apartment complex. Okay, give me the basic details. What do you want? What do I get? How much risk is involved? And how long will you tie up my money? And then I want to know what's the fatal element of that apartment complex decision. Oh, we could buy it, overpay for it. Our equity goes away. The bank forecloses because our notes do. And none of the partners want to put up any more money. So you'd lose all your money and the equity would be gone. Okay, so the, the fatal decision is whatever money I give you could, there is a probability, whatever it's high or low, that I could lose all my money. Yes, I don't want to do that, but thanks for asking. Well, why not? Because I don't want to lose all my money. Well, there's less than a 95% chance. Okay, well, start giving me data that demonstrates 
that it's less than a 95% chance and tell me what you're doing to protect against it. In other words, when you identify the, the components of risk and in investments and in business decisions, you can more adequately and more timely decide if it's something you want to proceed with, or in fact, it starts off with a no. I got called the other day by a new design for a, a trailer. And the trailer has some of this newest technology about safety and ease of use. And and young guy brought it to me and, you know, he's got ideas all the time. And he said, hey, I would like to show you this idea. It's an invention. It's a patent. And we have a manufacturing company. So he's thinking that maybe we want to manufacture it. And I said, well, I looked at it briefly. And the answer is we're not prepared, nor are we in the position to want to take on a new uh, trailer design, trailer idea. Our shop's busy. We got our product lined out. We know exactly what we're doing. So we want we don't want to digress our attention and manpower from that particular um, for that particular new item. So then I get followed up with a text, and the text says, Well, I know you may not want to, to manufacture it. Would you be interested as an investor? And the answer no came out like faster than the first part, because I said, No, no, thanks. I, I really appreciate it. Well, why not? And the answer is simple. You are looking around for private money. You give me an idea that's untested. You're going to need a lot of money, round one, round two, round three. Um, I'm sure the guy that's designed it that has the patent is going to want, as most people do, they're unrealistic in their expectations. Hey, I got a great idea for a trailer. You put up $10 million, I get 90% of the company. You get your $10 million back after I get all my money, blah, blah, blah. In other words, they, they want the lion's share on a new business venture, a new idea without any money at risk. And they just assume because they had a great idea, they should automatically have 90% ownership and control and decision-making. I've learned it to be the other way around. I've learned in 36 years of being in the investment world that when you come to a sophisticated investor, I mean, somebody who has expertise, broad knowledge, capital, access to friends and family and partners that have capital, they're going to ask you a couple of things that you're going to think about. And it goes to the power of no. They're going to want to know if you have an idea for them to invest in, are you invested? Is your money on the line? How much of your money is on the line? How invested are you? How much do you believe in the idea that you're asking them to join you in? Number two, what's the allocation of ownership and distribution of income? Well, if it's 90% toward you, the guy asking for the money and 10% toward them, sophisticated investors not only say no, but you're probably never going to get a second chance to ever talk to them again. There's no respect for the capital. If you're going to go out and be available to listen to business ideas you must have already established what you consider to be fair terms. For me, it's pretty simple. I need to know that the asset is something that is reasonable to try to achieve success. I'm not really into startups anymore. I've seen 99 out of 100 fail. I've started quite a few myself, and it's, it is unbelievable to climb the mountain for the first time. Okay. The second thing is you're always going to rely on one thing, and that is the core individuals that started the idea. And when you start really digging into the original entrepreneurs that come to the ideas, you're going to find yourself dealing with people who are not very stable themselves because just because they have a good idea doesn't mean they know how to run a business. But more importantly, doesn't mean they have the tenacity to stay the course and see it through. So there's a lot of elements to new startups. I just soon say no. Now, let's talk about how you say no. This is really important. I like to say no, but I like to do it respectfully. I like to at least give somebody a chance to tell me a little bit about what they're doing. And if I'm not interested, I'll say, sounds really good. I wish you the greatest success. It's just not for me. Well, why not? Why, why is it not for you? I mean, you know, got to give them credit for being persistent. And what I'll say is, to be candid with you, it's just not where I'm headed these days. It's not in my wheelhouse. It's not something I want to pursue. I've kind of got all my investment decisions lined out. 10 years ago, I definitely would have considered it. 
where I'm at in my life today, where I'm at in my investment portfolio building today, where I'm at in my forward motion with what I want to do with my portfolio, my estate doesn't match what you're asking. So we have just come across each other's paths at the wrong time. So I try to articulate and very politely explain to them, there's no reason to keep pounding on me, trying to sell me. I don't want to deter you, but the answer is no. Now, why do I not want to just be a, a rude jerk and slam the door in their face and send them out the door? Because sometimes the least identified source of a potential great idea maybe from somebody you've spoken to before. Some people just have a knack for attracting good ideas. And because idea number one doesn't make any sense, doesn't mean idea number two isn't uh, the invention of the Tesla. You just don't know. So I like to at least be polite. Um, I'll give them a definitive no. If they just can't take no for an answer, then I just say, look, the letters are N-O. I've said it. Thank you. Have a great day. You're welcome to call me back on other ideas, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and exit the phone call or leave the meeting or whatever, right? Okay, so let's talk about um, the opposite of saying no, which is opening the door. And what I want to remind you is when I talk about uh, minerals, I mean, excuse me, money in life, is it has to do with the substance of who you are. And I think you get a lot more in life when you attract it with sugar than you do with vinegar. So one of the things about leaving the door open is the ability to allow yourself the professional courtesy to maybe investigate. So I'm real good at this. I love to hear about people's ideas and I generally can assess what they're trying to do or where they're trying to go with it fairly quickly. It's a, it's a characteristic that I have naturally. And so I, I don't mind when somebody approaches me and I sure don't mind if they give me a suggestive, uh, hey, I've got a business, I wanna do X, Y, and Z. You know, what are your thoughts? I don't mind sharing those ideas with them. And I tell them all the time, you can take my ideas and throw them in the trash. But what I wanna do is I wanna leave that door open because I can use several examples in my career where you can either have a door shut or open very quickly. So I'll use an example of this last week. So I was given a reference of a guy that's pretty strong in business development. I had a big career, 20, 30 year career in doing all kinds of financial service, et cetera. And he was referred to me. So the guy calls me on the phone. I'm talking to him for 30, 40 minutes about my age. Sounds like he has a really past career of being successful. And I explained to him what I was looking for at my company and business development and customer relations, et cetera. And guy sounded really positive, sounded like he's going to have a a lot of interest in it. Said, I'll email you my resume on Monday because I'm in the mountains. I don't have really good Wi-Fi. I said, no problem. I'm not in a rush. You're the one that's looking for a job. I have a possible opening. Maybe what you want and what I'm looking for will match. We'll see. I'll see your uh, resume on Monday. Well, I didn't get the resume till late Monday, like six o'clock at night. First big clue. If you want a career and you want to join a successful company, the bus leaves the station at 8 a.m. It doesn't leave at 6 p.m. And what that clearly demonstrated and told to me, he really wasn't interested or he sure wasn't interested in getting a job at the rate or pace in which I want, which is somebody who wants to join a successful company and who wants to get started building some value and some career advantage, et cetera. So the fact that the resume didn't come until late in the day was the first kicker, which was not bad, but it was definitely a red flag. But the second part was the deal killer. The second part is I left the door open, said, send me an email. We'll talk. I'll fly you down for an interview. Wide open, carte blanche. Here, here's what we do. And he starts off with, thank you for talking to me last week. Here's a copy of my resume. Let me give you an alternative idea about how we can work together. And he rattles off for the next two paragraphs, his idea and how I should do this and that and how he can work with my client base, et cetera. And I said, you know, I'm not interested at all. So I thought about it. I waited for you know the overnight to answer. I wrote back and I said, it's apparent by your email, you're not interested in the job I have. You're not interested in the, in the direction that I'm going. 
I really appreciate your time and best of luck to you, but uh, there's nothing further to talk about. He writes back, says, okay, thank you so much, blah, blah, blah. Now, two things I find about that individual that, that are clear that was the right decision for me not to pursue it. One, uh, the way he responded with being so late. And the second thing is you start off by insulting me by saying, I don't like your proposal. Let me give you one that benefits me. So how can I use you, Troy, to get what I want? Yeah, that doesn't work well for me. And then the second thing is, um, there was no fight in him at all. There was no fight when I talked to him on the phone. There was no fight in his email. There wasn't even a fight. He pitched me on his idea. And I said, thanks, but no thanks. He didn't even fight to pitch his own idea. So the door was open. He didn't step in. He didn't even try to open the door. He didn't try to walk in the, in the investment house. He simply curled up like a doodlebug, which tells me exactly why at his age, he's on his sixth, seventh, eighth job. But he loves to talk about the trophies on the shelf, how many times he's done successful things. But at 55, 56 years old, he's unemployed and looking for his next gig, which tells me he's always chasing his tail like a dog in the living room. Let's use another example. So I was in an investment opportunity. Uh, it wasn't going well, but during that investment process, I ran across a consultant who understood my business, knew that I had access to private capital and said, hey, do you mind if I keep your card and if I run across something, I'll give you a call. I said, oh, absolutely. I said, I'm always willing to listen about investment opportunities in this particular sector. If you have something that you think makes sense, I'd love to hear about it. So I get a call about a year and a half later and they said, uh, my partner and I would like to come and meet you and tell you about an idea that we have. I'll fast forward the story. They come to San Antonio where I lived at the time. They tell me about an opportunity to buy some large assets held by public company. Um, I think the idea is fantastic. I know it's got a lot of risk, but the upside looks immense. I decide to take the deal, put it together, structure the venture, put up my own money to start with. And I can just tell you after 12 years, we still own the company. The company's made well over $100 million in net profit. It's, it's been a very big success. Um, I don't know how it's going to end up at the end of the day, but I can tell you from that little meeting and that willingness to let people know that my door was not locked, that it was open, I stumbled across an incredible asset and business opportunity I otherwise would have never heard about. It would have been just as easy for me to say, yeah, it sounds good, but I'm really not interested or it sounds good, but why don't you send me all these details and sign this non-disclosure and sign this exclusivity agreement? And I could have made it so burdensome that they wouldn't have never discussed with me what they had. But instead, I took the approach, let me just see and listen, and maybe it cost me the price of a lunch, what they have, and if it doesn't result in anything, so I got a nice lunch, met two new people, and I walk away with a big fat no that I have in the back of my mind, not a big deal, okay? So I'm going to wrap up the show with the following, and I think this is something that's important. How do you keep from getting skinned? What does that mean? Keep getting skinned, right? Well, if you've ever been deer hunting, they take the deer after it's been shot and they hang it up, and they basically take the hide, the skin off the deer to leave the meat so it can be processed. So that's kind of what it sounds like when you use the analogy, you've been skinned alive. It means that somebody has taken a financial articulation and they have skinned you of your coverings. They have taken away money. They've stolen from you. They've tricked you into a Ponzi scheme. They've, they've convinced you to do something that otherwise isn't really true. And I can tell you, listeners, I, I talk to people every day, all week long, of investments they're in that they have been skinned alive. Even when you tell them they've been skinned alive, they don't want to admit it. You, you ask them basic questions, you go, I know for a fact you're in a Ponzi scheme. I know for a fact those assets don't exist. I know for a fact that company is run by a felon. And you scratch your head wondering how they got into it, but that's a day late and a dollar short. It's too late to ask somebody why they took a ticket on the Titanic when it's halfway sunk, you're already there. But how do you get skinned alive is the following. Don't be gullible. You don't have to be rude, but don't be gullible. 
ask for references, not the ones that he gives you or they give you or she gives you. Ask for references by saying, um, may I have three people who've known you three years or longer that have invested with you and I'll need their name, address and phone number and give me an example or some example of the investments they've made with you. And I'd like to call them. All right, so you get the three names, you call them. But before you call them, run your Google search, find out who they are. <laughs> Maybe they're living in a $50,000 house or a mobile home and they happen to be the cousin of the guy trying to raise the money. Take the individual that's calling you and ask questions like, who owns the stock in your company? Who is the senior principal? Who's on the management team? I'd like their names and addresses. I want to run a Google search on them. Well, we're not privy to tell you that. You're asking me to start a business, invest in investment, to do something with you. And you're telling me that you do not want to provide me the basic information of who's going to manage my money, manage the assets, and who brought this deal to the table. You can do a litany of basic things to find out information before you ever get involved. But I can tell you the number one thing that no one does and they should. Now, remember, I've been doing investments with investors all over the United States for 36 years since 1985. I've had very few clients tell me, uh, Troy, I tell you what, I'll invest with you in your next project, but I need you to get on a plane, fly out here, sit down with me. I want to meet you face to face, see the whites of your eyes, and I want to know who you are, what you're about, and I want to see get a sense of your character. Or better yet, I'm going to fly in unannounced in the next three weeks, and I want to be able to meet with your CFO, I want to meet with your accountant, and I want to meet with your president of your company, and I really don't want to give advance notice. I want to come in on a typical day, and I want to see how you guys run your business. I want to see who's there, and I want to see how you run. If you're a true legitimate company, then you should have no problems with me being able to do that. And let's see what kind of response they get. See, at my company, we run a completely open, transparent business because I'm like, it's an open-door policy. You can walk in any day of the week. Everybody there is fully aware that we have partners and investors that show up. But our partners are all entrepreneurs themselves. They all run their own businesses. So the whole show that I've created and I continue to build upon and that I hope you continue to listen to is called Talk with the Texan, Money and Life, because I don't know, there's just something about being a Texan. I mean, you're just you're bred and raised to have kind of a different brain as a Texan. I mean, my dad was 6'2", 280 pounds. He adopted me and my three sisters when I was a kid. And the truth of the matter is, is that uh, his hands were size of, you know, baseball mitts and his fingers were as fat as, you know, sausages. And all he cared about was that you kept your word and you acted like a man and you, you, you did things right. You didn't lie, cheat, steal. And when I say that, it, it builds character. And I can just tell from traveling the world and from going to so many different states and so many different backgrounds and ethnicities, there's something unique about being a Texan. And I'm sure every state has their own claim to fame. But when you're a Texan, it's just something about the character that you try to instill not only in your kids, but in your family and in your life. And that is, we're going to tell it like it is. We're going to stand behind what we do. There's no greater fight than fights inside of a Texan. I fight more for the rights than the wrongs. I love the creation of this show because I want people to follow it and listen to it, to learn from it. I want to be challenged by it. I want to bring guest speakers on in the next few uh, episodes that are going to help talk about very important subjects. But when you add to it money in life, it's because at the end of the day, um, unless you were just completely decided when you're young, I don't care about material things. I don't care where I live, how I live. I really don't plan on getting married, having kids. I'm just going to bounce through life wherever I go. And man, there are people like that. There are people out there who just flat don't care. But I would say the American attitude, the can-do attitude, the, the pride of country, the pride of state, the pride of self is so great in this country 
that you've got to have resources to be able to try to fulfill that dream life that you might have. I mean, I remember as a kid trying to get lunch money out of my dad and mom. They were so broke. It was 35 cents. It was a quarter and a dime sitting on his little uh, side desk of his bed. And I'd go by every morning, eight or nine years old, and pick up that quarter and dime. That paid for my lunch that day. I'd go by some days and there wouldn't be any coins on his desk. And he'd say, buddy, you're going to have to figure it out. I'm like, dad, I'm eight years old. How the hell am I going to figure out getting lunch? I don't have a job. I'm eight years old. But I did figure it out. And so it makes you resilient. It makes you respectful. It makes you, it makes you have the mantra that I have in my life, which is, Work like you're broke because things can change. You need to make more money, as my wife says, MMM, make more money. And I do that, but I do it now more frugally. I do it more intelligently. I learned how to say no a lot better. So today's show has all been about common traits and characteristics and things to avoid and ways to get rich and how to avoid those mistakes. You take one thing away from this show. If you take one thing away, it may save you a lot of strife a lot of strain, a lot of stress, and maybe you don't lose all the money you thought you're going to lose. Listen, my name is Troy W. Eckerd. I am the president and CEO of Eckerd Enterprises. This show is Talk with a Texan. I love what I do. I love the clients I represent. And I want to educate those of you who are not millionaires, those of you who want to be millionaires. It's not a hard process. You just got to be committed to the game. Thanks for joining me on today's show. Signing off. Thanks to all our incredible friends for joining Troy for today's show, Talk with the Texan, Money and Life. Please join your host, Troy Eckert, for another edition of the program every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Troy, engage him, challenge him, but most importantly, listen to him. Three decades of expertise at your disposal. We'll see you here next week.